When this CEO was 14 years old in Farmington, Missouri, Sean Burcham started his first business with a best friend mowing lawns. After graduating from college, the entrepreneurial spirit continued when he entered the coffee business, servicing 16 cappuccino machines. When an opportunity arose to enter the chicken business, the coffee machines were pitched for a model that would lead to double-digit sales growth for 20 years. The name of the company is PFS Brands, based in central Missouri, who not only practices open book management and leadership, they teach it to other businesses around the U.S. At one time, they were ranked by Inc. Magazine as one of the fastest-growing privately held companies for nine consecutive years. Today, the employee-owned company is pushing 1,500 branded locations in about 40 states under the name Champs Chicken, Cooper's Express, and Blue Taco. Sean will be the first to tell you there's still much work to be done, but he loves the direction they are moving toward. Sean and members of his board of directors are guests on the CFO Bookshelf podcast, where we'll talk about financial transparency, Sean's book, Keeping Score with Grit, company culture, and core values. Bruce Reed, the CFO for PracticeLink. I always want to say PracticeLink.com because I do tell people about PracticeLink and I always say go to PracticeLink.com. So it's hard to say Bruce Reed, CFO of just PracticeLink. So anyway, you rare, the, one of the reasons we are called the no-name CFOs, you've picked up on that the last few weeks. I have. So I we, have. We are the, we are the, one, one of the reasons we're the no-name CFOs is because you rarely hear about, about me, right? We don't ever talk about me, which is I do that on purpose. But I do need to say today only that I run a firm, a small boutique CFO practice called G3 CFO. And by the way, this is the eight year anniversary, the eight year anniversary of G3 CFO of having a relationship, a great relationship with practice Oh, okay. So we need two more years and in two more years, hopefully I'll finally get that testimonial. So, <laughs> well, the reason, so the reason I bring that up is not to talk about the relationship with practice Link, which by the way, I just, I love the company. It's just a great company, great people like, like you. I love our owner. He is, he is, he's, he's, he, he, I want him to be my brother. He's just a good guy. And the reason I bring up G3 CFO is, is my practice is built on about a dozen frameworks. You take away my frameworks. I do not have a practice. So one of the, one of the frameworks I use, Bruce, is I, I need to say thank you to the marketers out there. Marketers have this moniker that marketing is a two-sided coin. You got uh, the magic, and you got the logic. Well, it's like, no, wait a minute. That 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 applies to founders, to CEOs, to businesses. Do do you agree with that? Can, can, so yeah, I can definitely agree with that. So, but there's also a third side. So I've added a third side to that coin of magic and logic. There's what I call dynamics, and the dynamics. I have a T three a T3 mindset for dynamics. T stands for team, but it's T3. So you have to have, number one, trust. Again, we're talking team dynamics. You have to have trust. You have to have truth. And you have to have transparency. You can't have one. You can't have two. You have to have all three. Then you've got this dynamic team that can facilitate the magic and the logic. Does that make sense, Bruce? So I may not be as smart. I may not be as smart and as creative as Patrick Lencioni, where they talk about uh, the health of the business and the smarts of the business, but this is the way I put it together. And then I have the other frameworks that support this T3 dynamics concept. So now why do I bring this up? Why do I bring this up? Because our guests today are members of the board of directors of PFS Brands based in Holt Summit, which is near Jefferson City, Missouri. Jeff City, the state capital of Missouri, which is right in the middle of the state. And have you heard of that company, Bruce? Oh, yeah. Um, 
I have heard of that company. Well, to be transparent, I've heard of that company because you you share a lot of the the success, a lot of the success stories that PFS has had. Um, you've also made us aware of owner founder and um, and how he goes about his business and the you know some of the the efforts that he's had. Uh, publishing and things along those lines as well. So it's a brand that I'm very familiar with. So I just want to say, Sean, I know you're listening. Uh, board members, I know you're listening. And team members, team members, the the employee owners, just let you know, I love you guys. And I brag about you behind your backs. So that's why Bruce knows about this company. These guys are special. I, I would, as, as I look at this company, they are what I call a learning organization. Uh, to me, to me, a learning organization is one who can step back and and learn at a very accelerated and purposeful pace. Not only that, they are good at unlearning and relearning. I mean, these guys are just phenomenal lifelong learners, and they don't just learn; then they put it into practice, and that's what's makes that what makes these people special. The reason I brought up my T3 dynamics, that's not their language. They have a whole set of vocabulary that they use in their organization. But one word that we are one word that we both use in both of our our businesses is transparency. When I throw out the word transparency, Bruce, what does it mean for you in a business context? I think it it shows what's what's going on behind the scenes um, there, but I don't I don't take a cookie cutter I don't have a cookie cutter view of what transparency looks like. It's the appropriate amount of disclosure, the appropriate amount of of information, so that <clears throat> that the the mission and all of the things that people do that people need to know to do their jobs well, to be super motivated, to be, you know, committed to and really feel um, part of, to really feel part of something and to, to feel committed uh, again to, um, to what's going on. Uh, that, that's how I view, that's what I think of with transparency. It's not, it's not, it's not all or nothing. It's, um, it, there's nuances to it. And on the other side of the interview, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I want to pick your brain a little bit. By the way, you use the term cookie cutter. That was that was awesome. That was brilliant. Oh, nice. So, so the the quality, I, I, hopefully the quality will sound good, but this is our first show, our first interview where we actually went to their uh, we went to their, uh, their their stomping grounds. We are at their headquarters. So we were sitting around a, a big board table. So again, the quality may be a little bit different, but it was a lot of fun. And again, I just, I love these guys. They're just, they are wonderful people. And if it's okay with you, Bruce, we'll start the interview. Is that all right? Yeah, I think that's great. I've, you, you've, I've heard so much about this organization. I'm really excited to get to see, um, to get to hear, I should say, um, kind of what goes on behind the scenes to get to see it in practice. So uh, Mark, take it away. Okay, Bruce, thank you very much. And before we get started, let's just go around the horn. I'm going to start at 12 o'clock. And so we have the board of directors, or most of the board of directors from PFS Brands. So we have Sean Burcham. Am I allowed to say good friend and president, CEO, founder of PFS Brands? So glad to have you. And then at, I'm going to say at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, we have Jen Briggs. And I'm going to say that you are famous because you have, well, you speak around the country on ESOPs and things like that, Those that topic. And also you used to be the HR director at New Belgium, correct? So you're famous. And then we have the chief financial officer, the very first chief financial officer for PFS Brands, Trevor do not call me Peyton Manning because you look, you talk like him too. You look like him, you talk like him, but Trevor Monix, so the board of directors are laughing. Hey, there's one other name I want to mention. I want to give her a shout out. And that's Julie Burcham. So in my opinion, she's the personal chairman of the board of Sean. So behind every great person, there is a partner and Julie is that, that great, amazing partner. We just had lunch with her and I wish she could have come. I think she made an excuse to, I don't want to be a part of this. So, so let's jump right in, Sean. Let's just, 
this is going to be like the lightning round of, of um, James Kramer. So we're going to hit a bunch of topics very, very fast. And I know y'all are looking at me like this guy's weird, but let's just go fast and let's just talk about the book first. So you've actually, you're an author. So you wrote Keeping Score with Grit. Great book. And by the way, speaking of the book. My name is Jeff Schutz. Sean, I just finished reading your book, Keeping Score with Grit. I'm president and CEO of City Rent-A-Truck. I think this is a great book for somebody that's that's young, that's just starting out because, you know, you've paved the path, you've, you've paved the road here for people that they can learn from your successes. They can learn from mistakes. I got to know about your family, your, 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 your parents, and, and just kind of how, uh, what type of, uh, employer you are. I think it's neat hearing about all your airplanes. It was just a joy to read. Being an entrepreneur, you're self-starter, um, motivated, driven. Um, we, we can say all that all we want, but boy, it sure does help uh, when you read a book like this. You know, we, we still need that that motivation and that, that coaching. It, 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 it can help, believe me. So anyway, just really enjoyed the book. Thank you very much. Don't you love comments like that? That was good, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. It's always great to hear comments like that. And Jeff, thank you very much. So what are some of the big points in the book? Well, I think first and foremost is the goal-setting principles in the book. Uh, I really, until uh, recently, uh, you know, going back six or seven years ago, I didn't realize uh, the the importance of goal-setting. And, and more importantly, I didn't realize that people didn't set goals. They don't set goals. So, the reality of it is uh, out in the world today, about 17% of people actually set goals and one half of 1% of people actually write them down. And you're 50% more likely to achieve your goals if you write the goals down. So uh, I think that's uh, that's one of the big lessons. Uh, obviously, there's some personal stories in the book, but uh, the, the main thing is goal setting and, and keeping score and uh, ultimately holding yourself and other people accountable. Jen, favorite part of the book? Favorite part of the book, maybe, oh, I'm going to embarrass you right now. It'll be where he met you. <laughs> we were told there's some things off topic, but go ahead. I just, I what I do love is the story of discovery, of learning. And I think the important lesson for all of us in Sean's journey is how he read, he learned, he discovered, and he created this company from many great ideas. So it wasn't one specific, it wasn't a sit and get one moment of discovery, but um, the lessons learned and the incorporation of the lessons of his father. Trevor, you read about 300 books a year. I mean, you just, you, you amaze me. What was your favorite part of the book? Well, why are you laughing? Well, for those that read the book, they'll figure out that, that that's, uh, that's not quite accurate, but uh, absolutely. This is one book that I read and I've actually become an avid reader uh, since starting here at PFS Brands. So Sean and I have that in common and a great story from back when we first met. My favorite part of the book is, is it's so personal to me. So while I wasn't there on the, on the first day, I've been here at PFS Brands for six years now. And I can look back and think about all those times and a lot of the stories in the book and a lot of the people and how it's impacted people how practicing transparency and uh, really just hiring people and focusing on people has impacted those people across the years. So uh, really just personal to me and, and seeing how sometimes when you look back on things, you don't realize how much you can accomplish in such a short amount of time. Trevor, do not put the mic down. Uh, by the way, we're in Holt Summit, Missouri. Huge, beautiful community. You're from Colorado. Don't you love Holt Summit? She's nodding. I, I'm, 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 I'm asking Jen, being a little bit funny. There may not be a lot to do here. There's no wildfire smoke here no right wildfire. now. There's no wildfires. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about financial huddles. What in the world is a financial huddle? So financial huddle uh, can take the form of many things, but really it's all about getting together in a group and sharing numbers, uh, talking about what the numbers are, what's happening, uh, where are they trending, where do we have issues, what do we need to work on right now, and, and then looking forward, starting to think, how do we manage the numbers? How do we lead the numbers in the right direction and where they need to go? So it's really all about getting people in a room, looking at those things and talking about them. 
And Jen, because you're a board uh, board member, you attend every huddle, I mean, remotely. What's your favorite part of the huddle? This is going to sound a little bit corny, but it's watching and hearing how excited people get. Um, you can hear the enthusiasm. And now, of course, that so we've gone to Zoom for a lot of things. There's attendance. You can see p- people's pictures. You can hear camaraderie. And so I don't think it's intuitive that sharing financial information builds camaraderie. That seems counterintuitive, but it's it's not. People can really get galvanized around seeing something be successful and taking part of it, like seeing how their actions could generate better numbers. Sean, I have a question for you about financial huddles. We are in building number three. You started the financial huddles in building number one. Do you remember the first huddle you did? I mean, we're going back nine, 10, 11 years ago. What were those first huddles like when you got started? Good question. They looked a lot different back then. We, uh, I like to say we had a crude open book management style. We're, we're self-implemented at PFS Brands. So initially we opened the books and, and started to assign general ledger codes. So you can imagine they were pretty boring. Uh, it was a lot of numbers and we were literally showing the general ledger codes at that point. But uh, it, it did make a significant difference almost immediately just by opening up uh, the financial statements. And we, we had shared a lot at the time anyway, but never really shared the overall financial statements and quite honestly, never explained those financial statements and what they meant. So uh, it did start to make an immediate impact. And again, it was very crude back then, but I, I just encourage some people uh, at many times just to go and try different things. And that's what we were doing at the time. I, I thought one of the, as I was reading a couple books, I thought one of the most ingenious things was just to assign general ledger codes. Uh, at that time, we might have had four or 500 general ledger codes, and typically it may be the CEO or maybe just a controller or accounting person looking over those numbers. And it's just a lot of stuff for one person to keep track of and, and things that they really don't control, but they understand them. So as you get more people to understand that they can control the numbers, it makes a big difference. This comes out in the book, but I still want to ask you anyway, what's your advice to CEOs, founders who are maybe a little bit reluctant how important have financial huddles been, not for just as you, but even all the team members who get to hear and see these numbers? Yeah, not just financial huddles, but huddles overall in general. Uh, you know, I was at the time pretty much an anti-meeting person. I, I just figured that people can figure things out on their own. And as organizations scale, uh, just the communication is critical. So uh, if you have a good rhythm and a good cadence, a good cadence to your huddles, Uh, That helps with the overall communication. When you throw the financial huddles in there, the importance is just elevated as people begin to understand the numbers and how they can affect those numbers. And of course, the uh, kind of the icing on the cake is some type of a profit distribution plan. If you if they've got a stake in that outcome of what might happen, if the numbers are good, uh, obviously, uh, everybody's rowing in the same direction and trying to hit those same numbers. Trevor, back to you. You guys also do a weekly KPI meeting. Just What's that like? Well, we cover so much information in 20 minutes. I I think that's the key thing to take away is that we can get together. There's a rhythm. There's a cadence. We spend, oh, the first third of that meeting really looking at last week. And we run through uh, a lot of numbers very quickly. Again, everybody knows what to expect, and there's a real rhythm to it. We run through that to identify, are there any trends that are going the wrong direction? Or is there something we need to take care of right away that, that is going wrong from last week? And then we shift our brains forward. So we spend the rest of the meeting looking forward to the end of the month, really thinking about where the numbers are headed and talking about how we can impact them in a positive manner. Jen, I'm going to put you on the spot. You work with a lot of different companies over the past number of years. Companies that see the weekly KPIs, daily KPIs, can you see a difference between those who make those very available to all the team members versus those who don't share any numbers whatsoever? Yeah. Open organizations, bottom line are just better um, because people understand. And even if it's not an employee owned community, that open book ability to see what's going on, to understand it, feel like they're a part of something. And uh, you know, a lot of people make the correlation to sports 
Um, you know, we watch sports on TV. Corey Rosen wrote this in his recent book, Beyond Engagement. Like you see a scoreboard and you're engaged in the game. The difference for these companies, including PFS brands, is they're playing their part of it, um, which we can't get through sport. And I think that's a really, really big deal. And just the trust that comes if my company is being open with me, I'm going to give more back to that company. So you have this reciprocity of trust that happens when you have an open organization. And that that is um, it's almost a grail for a lot of companies is to get that trust. I'm curious, I'm nosy, Sean, whether it's a Monday morning or a Friday evening, what are the two or three metrics that you look forward to seeing every week? Can And I'm trying to stall so it gives you time to think about what are the top two or three. Do you have a two or three that come to mind? Well, the... Uh, for us in our particular business, it's it's all about branded accounts. We're we're in the branded food business, so uh, definitely the the number of branded accounts that we both sell, sign, and open uh, is critical for us. Uh, you, you know, our our Monday morning, we actually have a uh, a group of Trevor may be able to help me here, but I think we've probably got thirteen or fourteen key performance indicators that we send out to the entire company on Monday morning after our uh, Monday morning meeting. So uh, critical for us, uh, just to name a couple in there, def- definitely top line sales for that week. Uh, but we're also looking at our gross margin percentage, uh, which ultimately gets us to somewhat of a quasi EBT percentage uh, for that week. So uh, th- th- those are key. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Those are much different in most other companies uh, as far as, uh, you know, top line cures a lot. Uh, but the great thing about open book management and the leadership style that we embrace is, the top line is not always the, the the real number. And I think the first first 11, 12 years, I was probably overly focused on that top line number. And uh, we, we, got to, we got to where we got to focus more on the expenses and that expen- expense control and ultimately started growing our bottom line. One of the things I appreciate, appreciate you guys with your key numbers is it's almost like they're available on demand. Now, there may be some some of your weekly numbers. It may take a couple of days to get those prepped, but now you've got real data. You've got real evidence as opposed to city of the pants decision-making. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I do believe most of our numbers that we look at are available on a daily basis. Uh, we, we've got a lot of live visibility of our numbers. So to your point, there are a couple that need to be calculated on a weekly basis, but I would say 95% of them are are available on a live basis. And, and, and that doesn't happen overnight either. That, that takes a, a constant effort to get to the point where you've got that immediate visibility, if you will. I want to switch gears. I want to talk a little bit about culture. And before we do that, I want you to hear this first. Hi, I'm Mindy Shivers. I work at PFS Brands in the accounting office. Um, I've always appreciated my mentors and coaches at PFS Brands. They've always been throughout the years. They've always provided me with guidance, leadership, as well as solid work ethics and core values. They also provide the tools and resources for me to do my job effectively, as well as listen to any of my concerns or suggestions. Knowing that I have their support has made me a better leader and all in all, a better person. I'm Josh Anderson. My role is digital business leader at PFS Brands, and I love PFS Brands because just the culture that we've built at that at the company is pretty amazing. The camaraderie, the teamwork, um, and it also offers me the flexibility and the work-life balance that I'm looking for. And overall, it's just a great company culture to be in. Culture may be an overused word, but we'll stick with that word because everyone knows what that generally means. Now, I just talked to two people. I could have talked to maybe 120 other people, but I just took those two. You're going to have to trust me. They are representative of everybody. And so I'm looking at Jen. This does not happen by accident. And I'm going to give you a chance, all of you, a chance to address this. But how does this, how does good culture, great culture happen, Jen? Again, it's not accidental, is it? No, but I think those words that you chose, good culture, every company, every community has a culture. So you have to choose what culture you're going to build. And so a lot of companies just hope it kind of happens and it will happen. It'll take on a life of its own and odds are it's not going to be the life that you necessarily wanted. 
And culture, when you're a small group, is a lot easier because you can have that connection with each other. The minute you start growing or have a lot of remote workforce or need middle management, all of a sudden that challenge gets a lot different because you want that um, you want that coherence to the idea, to the vision, and making sure that people's actions and attitudes are matching up to that. And that takes work. Um, that's not a program that you plug in. It's not, you know, a book that you read last week, book of the month clubs. Usually people kind of avoid that style of management. It's a way of living inside the business. And so that's what I think PFS Brands has done is really define and create this powerful way of living the business. Trevor, you have worked in multiple businesses. What's been the difference between PFS and other companies that you've worked in culture-wise? Well, we could go on this one for several hours, I think. I'll certainly give you the short version, but I think when it comes down to it for me, there's there's trust involved. And and that's really the key term. Jen, you said it earlier. In creating an environment of trust, that transparency certainly helps with that. But then the behaviors of not only the CEO or the leaders, but everybody in the organization matters. And it's a lot of fun to be involved with a group of people that, that really care. And Sean, how long did it begin to take? Because I look at, first of all, you've got a good personality. I can't see why anyone would not want to come in. And by the way, I'm not just saying that. I'm just, I'm just being brutally factual. I've been told I'm blunt. So I'm being blunt. I mean, I think, I think you already had kind of this, this is going to be a good environment to work in, but you've taken it to a whole new level. What did you have to do to help change that? Because again, I think things were already good. Even when we first met 10 plus years ago, what, what changed? What, what did you do? Yeah, I think I'll go back to what Jen said. I mean, we've got we've got the experts sitting over here to my left with Jen Briggs and what she does. So uh, the the culture, to your point, was not broken. And I was very close to the 30 or so people that we had at the time. And to Jen's point, it's, it's pretty easy to touch everybody at that point. Uh, as the company begins to grow and as you begin to put on different management teams, leadership teams at that point, maybe just management people, uh, they may not even be a management team, depending on how you're structured. Uh, that culture becomes harder to get through the entire organization. And every new person that you bring on, you have to realize that they have no idea what type of culture they're walking into. And I'd also go back to what Jen said with the fact that every company has a culture. The real difference is, is it intent? I mean, is that an intensive culture? Is it something that you do intentionally to create that culture or is it happening by accident? So both, both of those things from a cultural standpoint, again, they're, they're, it's going to be there one way or the other. So the real changing point for me was the, 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 the extreme focus on the culture itself, on the people internally versus uh, at the time of a major external customer focus. So not that we don't still focus on our customers, but the real shift was really focusing on that internal culture and the people that are on board. Speaking of culture, let's talk core values. Core values, sometimes I, I, I think of core values, you hire this consultant, they come in, you go off site, you have all, all these dry erase boards where you're making notes, then you come back, you put them up, then people forget them. That's not the case. I mean, core values is really a verb, an ongoing action verb. Is that correct? That's the way core values should be. I'll say that. Uh, it, again, it depends on the company. A, a lot of companies will establish a mission, a vision, and core values, and they put it up on the board, and they think that's good enough that everybody will read that and it just happens. Uh, again, if you really are truly focused on those, uh, you have to be hiring by those core values. You have to be coaching and training people by those core values. And uh, honestly, in some cases, uh, having t tough discussions that people don't fit sometimes. And that's where the straight talk strategies, uh, as you'll read in the book, that it really comes in. So many leaders are diff so many leaders, uh, decide not to have those conversations and let people stay on board too long. And, and that becomes accepted. And that's how cultures get ruined, in my opinion. I want to ask Trevor a quick question because you brought this up in our board meeting earlier. You use core values in a very, maybe it's not unique, but I like the way you use them as you do your mentoring and coaching throughout the year. Can you explain how you use those? 
Sure. We go through a quarterly cadence on getting together and talking about behavioral, uh, how we behave towards those, uh, with those core values in mind. So it creates a really unique and dynamic dialogue between uh, the leader and the employee owner here and just talks about, are we living those core values? What can we do better? And where might we be falling a little bit short? And then a question for Jen, core values, I know is a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Could you, I'm kind of leading the witness, but can you clear, can you just state clearly that core values do, I mean, they are compatible with profitability sales. I work with a lot of high dopamine CEOs. It's like, I want to just get in, do this, you know, generate sales, generate bottom line. It's like, I don't have time for the core values. Your rebuttal to that would be. Well, to me, the core values are your commitments. So their commitments, the way you're going to live that business. So even people usually have them, they're just not stated. And so if you're not stating them, you're not sharing them and other people can't understand them and you can't invite them into the activity of the business with you. So it's really the beginning of making this commitment as a business community that this is a way we're going to live, act, and do inside this business. And it's, it's that idea of go slow to go fast. You get these commitments done and then you take off. Um, you know, so it, I think it helps you go faster once you get that foundation built. Similar topic, management teams. Sean, a lot of the companies I start working with, they're under $25 million in sales. They don't even have a management team or that may be a small team. I want to hear from you. And again, this comes up in the book. Why does every CEO need to have at least a management team? Yeah, I think if, it, if you're a $25 million company, to some degree, you probably have a management team, whether it's formalized or not. Uh, I think what you're asking, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is, is it formalized? Right. That, that formalized team, uh, especially if you're a scaling company, you have to be selective on who that team is. I mean, you're going to have visionaries and you're going to have integrators and you're going to have uh, people that are great at doing things. And, and those are all important people. I mean, we hire people in companies and there's no bad jobs, right? We don't hire people to do work that we don't need done. Uh, but the management teams have to be intentional, and, and there's some great tools out there, assessment tools, and uh, there's a great book out there uh, called Top Grading that really helps you select better people. And that was an instrumental book for us in, in kind of implementing our hiring processes and really being more intentional, too, about the people that we hire. Uh, and we did that when we uh, were right about that $20, 25000000 million company where through some study and I, I was going through the same scaling processes and we figured out that we need this management team put together. So question for Trevor, you are on the leadership team. So we talked about management team. You're on the leadership team. What's the difference between a management team and a leadership team? I wanted to ask that to Sean, but it's like, no, I want to, I want to divvy up these questions. So you gave I'm the easy one. Is that, that, was good, that was a good pass. Yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> so I want to hear the difference between management and leadership team. I mean, there is a difference, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. Huge, huge difference. So really managing, uh, you know, I think of tasks, how are we going to get things done right at the end of the day? And that is management in a nutshell. We have certain things that have to be done. We need people to do them and we, we make sure they get done, you know, taking it to the whole new level. Leadership is inspiring. It's taking people to another level. Maybe they didn't even know they had, uh, inspiring them to run, take an idea and make it happen. And that's where the magic really happens. Question for Jen. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm assuming because you're an HR person, this should be right up your alley, right? Part of your bailiwick. But so uh, let's take a CEO. They want to start with the management team, the leadership team. What's the first step for them? They want to start with them? Get one. I mean, begin to formalize it. What's the first step? I, I'm going to repeat what Sean said. It's really understanding what you want as a company, what kind of aspirational culture you're trying to develop, and making sure you have the people. Um, you know, we've all heard of the people or the Peter principle, um, you know, getting hired to the highest level of your incapability, I guess is one way to say it. And that is absolutely not what you want to do. Just because somebody's functionally good at their area doesn't mean they're going to make a great leader. 
Um, and as much as we know that companies make that mistake over and over and over again. So I think you do have to look at what can they do the obvious, but what are they capable of in the future? What's their growth potential? How do they fit in as a group? How do they complement each other? Um, because if you just hire functional leaders, you're just going to drive that silo effect on and on and on in your company. And most companies are trying to break that. You're hitting a topic that I was hoping someone to be a little bit more direct with. So let me be more direct because you're talking about people. The, the men and women who helped you to get to 5 million may not be the men and women who will help you to get to 10 million or even 25 million. You may have people who are great at getting you, getting you to 25. They may not be the people to get you to a hundred million. Is that a correct statement? I mean, sometimes do we need to maybe coach people either out or maybe over? Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, also, I want to be careful when I say that because some companies don't commit the proper time and education to help them grow. Good point. So, you know, I think it's it's a balance. It's really understanding what people want, what they're capable of, um, people that are putting the time, study, practice into growing. Because um, a lot of people will amaze you um, once they know that that they're wanted and that they have a chance. And then it just doesn't work out with some people. So I don't think it's an easy answer. Do we have time for three more bullet points? So this one may seem, hey, this is not applicable to my business. It's like, I don't care. This one is a good one. This one is what I would call extremely cool. You guys have what's called discovery days. Tell me what discovery days is, because I think the concept is absolutely brilliant. And the future customers or clients, I'm going to call them customers. I think that's what we call them here. They, they love discovery days too. So what is that? Where'd the idea come from? Yeah, I don't know if it's applicable to a lot of businesses. Uh, certainly there are some out there that it would be. But discovery days for us, uh, we, we host these once a month. Uh, it's a two-day event and we bring customers, prospective customers in our business, wholesalers and retailers into our facility essentially to observe our company. And it's, uh, for us, we're in the food business. So a lot of people think they're coming in here just to try food and they're completely amazed when they come in here and they see our culture. I'm using quotation marks with my fingertips, uh, because you, you said culture is an over overused word, but everybody does understand what that means. So discovery days, uh, they get the opportunity to actually live and breathe our culture, see our key performance indicators, uh, meet our employee owners here, and they really get a feel for our company that we're much more than just a food company. Uh, we really do care about our people. And, and when we care about our internal people, uh, obviously that transcends uh, into us caring about our customers more than our competitors. So uh, Discovery Days is just a great time for us to bring uh, people in. If you've got a great business, uh, whether whether you've got great products, people, whatever, uh, it's it's always great to bring them into your place so they can – see what you're all about and obviously we're from missouri so uh, we're from the show me state so we like to bring people in here and show them show them uh, our our people this is really a segue i brought this up because what if there's like a let's take a, an fpna team an accounting team a sales team they hear this or they've read the book can they reach out to you guys in the linkedin and say we'd like to come visit do a tour because there are just so much to see here is is that a correct statement. Yes, we open our doors uh, quite a bit, so we just have to have to be scheduled. Obviously, we've got a grit business coaching uh, model underneath uh, our our primary ESOP. So, uh, grit business coaching is all about helping other companies uh, be more successful, and we do that through employee engagement, oftentimes open book leadership. Uh, but yeah, uh, you know, people are open to come in here and uh, experience uh, our our huddles, our key performance indicator sessions, and. Uh, we have guests in here all the time. We enjoy it. Next bullet point, customer service. And I'm going to look at Trevor. I don't care what department. It could be in the warehouse. It could be in your blends facility. It can be in your print shop. Everyone understands the concept of customer service, even accountants. Hey, your IT group even understands the concept of customer service. Why is that? Where did that come from? You know, I think it really stems from the ownership thinking that goes on around here. 
Uh, we talked about ownership thinking. Sean's been talking about it since before I was around. Uh, but when we became 100% ESOP, it really took it to a whole nother level. So when, when, so, when everyone here has a stake in the outcome, has ownership in the company, it means everything. They want to take care of that customer at the highest level possible. Last question. And this kind of relates to the financials, the KPIs, but you guys are data is become a big thing. I mean, data is now an asset. Data is now uh, part of the, well, it supports strategy. I don't know who I want to ask, Sean or Trevor, but how important, let's go to Sean. How important has it been just to have this data warehouse in the background where you can go to like a click tool and just start querying it? That's a big deal, isn't it? Yeah, it really is a competitive advantage for us. And uh, I, I love data. Excuse me. I love data myself. Uh, I love the numbers. I love the financials. Uh, the, our, our data team, along with our IT team, has done uh, such a tremendous amount of work to get us this uh, almost instant visibility. Our, our wholesale partners that provide us the type of reporting that we need uh, have been uh, instrumental in our success. And uh, just to really thank them for what they're able to do. But the uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Trevor, Trevor can uh, piggyback on here, but the, the data for us is just uh, high, highly important and uh, the team just continually does better with it. Trevor's saying this has been a five-year project, right? It's been easy, hasn't it? <laughs> oh my, it's been, it's been a lot of effort and on the part of a lot of great people. And it, it's been quite a journey and it is daunting because you start out and your data, you have data, but it's, it's no good. It's all over the place and, and pulling it all together getting quality data and getting it into usable formats is a, is a large, large lift. But I can't agree more with Sean that it is definitely a, a competitive advantage that we have. And it's not just in our industry, right? Who knew, who knew chicken needed uh, data, right? But you know, you, you hear data everywhere, every industry, everything. Um, there's just data points all over the place. And you have to be able to use them to understand the story behind them, to think forward and, and pivot accordingly. So Peyton Manning, don't put the mic down yet. Last question, last bullet point. You think that's funny? He does. If you look at this guy, he looks like Peyton Manning. And on the financial huddles I've been attending via Zoom lately, it's like, you know, he does look like Peyton Manning. So anyway, you're, you quit laughing at me. So the last bullet point, ESOPs. Um, what is an ESOP? And that's that could be a dumb question. It's like everyone should know what an ESOP is, but... You actually said over lunch that there's a lot of people who don't know what an ESOP is, or they have a misunderstanding. But what is an ESOP? And then, Sean, we'll talk about the decision for PFS Brands to become uh, an an employee-owned organization. So, Trevor, what is ESOP? Yeah, so ESOP, Employee Stock Ownership Plan, just, just to start there. And you're right, it's wildly unknown, and it's wildly misunderstood. Unfortunately, we can't really explain it within uh, in two minutes or even two hours. So that's one of the one of the frustrating things. It is very complicated. But an ESOP is a uh, is a qualified retirement plan in which owns the shares of the company, which Sean and, and his wife Julie sold to the ESOP. Uh, so it owns those shares, and there is a, a non discriminatory way that those shares are then distributed to our employee owners that are eligible to join in the ESOP in any given year. And so ultimately, it transfers that ownership and puts it in the hands of the employees. And again, uh, we talked about it in customer service. We talked about it in the, in the numbers and the data. And, and that really gives that ownership, right? And not only do we talk about ownership thinking, now we truly have ownership in the shares. And uh, imagine uh, a, and in taking engagement to that level when you actually own shares in this company and want to make a difference in it. So, Sean, two questions. And I can come back with a second if I need to, but what was the thought process going moving toward the ESOP? And then the second question, and again, I can come back to it, is advice for other founder owners who may be thinking about a transition down the road. But let's start with the first question. What was the thought process as you made that transition? Yeah, I'm just a big believer in capitalism. I think we need more of it. And, and to give everybody a taste of ownership without them having to sign any personal guarantees or sign any loan documents or, or really have uh, zero risk. Uh, it's, it's just empowering to see them have an opportunity to create something that uh, is unique. Uh, unfortunately is too unique in the country, but uh, 
the the thought process was pretty easy for me as as we think about how how this business is going to transition and, and trying to keep a, a privately held business uh, around for maybe a hundred plus years, uh, wanting to keep jobs in the local community, uh, wanting to assure the employee owners that we're not going to sell out to a private equity company or a larger company and and these jobs go away. Uh, there's been a a lot of people, and there continue to be a lot of people that have uh, contributed to this company's success and have given Julie and I an opportunity to have something that is uh, extremely unique and provide some things for our families that uh, some people are less fortunate to have. So uh, for us, it was all about making sure that uh, these people that have helped us along the way uh, are able to to go home and sleep at night and uh, know that they kind of control their own destiny with their own ESOP. And then what advice do you have for other owners? And you kind of hit on this a little bit, but what advice would you have for owners who are even thinking about this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first you you have to, you have to be a certain type of individual to even consider this. So I would say first step, if somebody is considering it, uh, it's got to be for the right reasons and the right reasons are similar to what I just talked about, that capitalism, providing people an opportunity to, to have another qualified retirement plan, potentially in addition to a 401k. Uh, and uh, it's got to be, uh, you know, not all ESOP companies are open book management companies. So uh, obviously that's what we prefer and uh, it, it's worked well for us. Uh, but my personal opinion for an ESOP to be highly successful, uh, and there are some ESOPs out there that have not been open book and have made that transition to open book, and it's been transformational for them to see the difference uh, when people truly understand the numbers and they understand their stock value. So, uh, you know, give us a call if you're interested in ESOP. It's what we do at Grit Business Coaching. Uh, I've talked to numerous uh, people on the seller side and uh, – uh, even, even some uh, people that are going to be involved with this transaction. So uh, we, it's it's a unique community. Trevor Trevor mentioned it. It's it's somewhat complex and complicated, uh, and there's lots of questions I can tell you, especially from a founder trying to to get all of your head wrapped around uh, these concepts and how everything works, and and ultimately trying to make that tough decision uh, because we're we're proud of what we have done as entrepreneurs. Uh, sometimes that's hard to let that go, but uh, the the results and, and the impact that you make on other people are pretty significant. Sean, Jen, Trevor, thank you very much. Can we do this again? Absolutely. Enjoy it. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, appreciate you having us. This has been great. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now, back to your hosts, the no-name CFOs, Mark and Bruce. So one of the topics was financial huddles. My question for you, Bruce, is does your company do something similar to financial huddles? Now, like in my practice, we don't use that term. We use, we use either, we, we delineate between a debrief and debriefs. And so the, do you all do something similar to that, to what PFS Brands does? Yeah, I don't think we go to the depth that PFS does um, there. And I, I think that's also reflective of some of the structures of the two organizations there. Uh, we we believe firmly in, you know, bringing, bringing the information to people that's necessary for them. Like, like I mentioned at the, at the opening, it's necessary for them to, to know where they can contribute, but also to have that feeling of com- of confidence in the company that, that we're, you know, we're, we're being responsible and we're looking at these things. So, um, so with, with our senior management team, I review a, um, one certain set of numbers, um, there and that's, and, and again, those are the numbers that are, that are pertinent to the, the areas that, that senior management, um, is involved. Can I ask you what numbers those are? Are those just financial or do they include non-financial as well? Uh, the, the numbers that I typically do are, um, are financial. So there's, there's top line. Uh, we look at, uh, AR performance <clears throat> and <clears throat> we look at the, um, some, some client growth rates, um, there and average spend at a very, very, very high level. You do this with the leadership team. Do you also do it with the rest of the team members? You have about, so with the, you, you have about 30 ish employees. Is that right? 
30? Uh, just over 50. Oh, oh, excuse me. Oh, that, but that's with all of the entities, right? Um, <clears throat> with the, well, yeah, practice link is right around 50. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. For with, with, with some additional, um, with some additional contract resources uh, w- with the rest of the team, it's, it's even a further high level. So it's, it's, you know, we look at what revenue trends over a period of time have been uh, just to, you know, ensure that we're, you know, we continue to cel- celebrate the growth that we've had over a period of time. Plus what the most recent um, levels are, then we dig into the metrics behind that. So being a largely a subscription business uh, there, you know, we look at it in terms of churn expansion and contraction there uh, again at a, um, you know, at a, you know, at, at a summary level there. And then, um, and this is where, you know, for a, a privately owned business, it starts to get tricky. We look at financial health. So, you know, it's, we're not going deep into the balance sheet, but we are discussing the health metrics behind the balance sheet. So, um, you know, level of working capital necessary to, to weather a storm, um, you know, do reassure, um, you know, debt levels are, you know, that the debt levels are handled in a responsible manner and, and, and things, all of things along those lines. So, um, and that's, you know, and that has been, and, and that, that is surveyed very well within our, uh, within our organization. Does it make a difference? Are, are there be, are there behaviors that are affected because of what you're sharing? <clears throat> um, I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to think so. Um, there, I think it, it, you know, allows people to understand where they fit in, into, into that financial picture. It's certainly not a, I wouldn't say that it's the, um, a primary driver there, but I, I do think it has a cumulative impact over on top of the other things that we do to, to ensure employee engagement. Well, good topic. And we'll talk about this in the future. This, we will actually be having Sean on just himself uh, later, uh, I want to say maybe in the new year, um, he's written a book, he's an author and we, and that came up in the, the interview, but again, this will be something that we'll, we'll talk about more and, and flesh it out. So good stuff. I, I, th- and thank you for uh, your openness, your, uh, thanks for sharing. Oh, absolutely. Felt like, feel like you're the one being interviewed now. Yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I, uh, I don't feel like I shared too much, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't go full debate on you and just answer the question that I felt like answering. So hopefully it was, uh, hopefully it's helpful. All right. Well, looking forward to moving forward and you have a good rest of the week and you do your thing, sir. Mark, have, have a great week as well. It's always a pleasure. Everybody out there, stay safe, stay well, practice love and empathy, and we'll talk to you again soon. CFOs, VPs of finance, controllers, staff accountants, financial analysts, FP&A professionals, and all other financial leaders. Thank you for listening to CFO Bookshelf.